Well, I'm delighted to say that to joining me on the Godcast this week is Anderson Jeremiah. Now, Anderson is a lecturer in politics and religion at Lancaster University. He's also uh, ordained. He's also the trustee of the uh, Church Urban Fund and is a member of uh, the Church of England General Synod. So, Anderson, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the Godcast. How are you today? Um, excellent. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a real Real honor to have this conversation, uh, and I'm I'm actually very um, like a, a celebrity uh, starstruck at the moment, given your amount of work. So thank you for having me. <laughs> that's that's far too kind, but but it's a real pleasure, and thank thanks for coming on. Now now we're here to to kind of uh, follow on from previous Godcast around recent news in the church that you and I have been involved with, which is the decision by the church to uh, bless um, couples that are in same-sex relationships. I was wondering, uh, now that the dust has settled a few weeks down the line, Anderson, how you feel about things and the news that, that's been, been and the decisions that have been taken? Um, uh, maybe before uh, I also need to say some disclosure, because I'm also a member of the Faith and Order Commission, and the Ministry Council, two of the most important. So my views are entirely my view, so I'm not representing either of those uh, bodies. Um, it's, I think it's, it's been a, quite an emotive um, journey leading up to the General Synod because um, the very journey of LLF itself for the past uh, four or five years, and then various discussions um, and then the debate itself uh, for nearly nine and a half hours uh, certainly certainly had its impact. And I think um, more on a on a practical level, I was exhausted, and uh, you you felt that how much you're drained of being present there. Uh, but having recovered, I think what I feel is that th this there's so much that needed to be unpicked from that uh, two days of conversations. And perhaps I think most of us, you know, from, from different persuasions are trying to figure out the best way to be the church that we have been called. Yes. Uh, um, and, and you say there are a few things to be picked out, Anderson. Could you uh, suggest a couple of things that have, that have come to mind, please? Um, certainly, I think first of all, being honest about what ex what actually happened in the general synod, um, you know, uh, being very clear that despite the different of opinions, a significant number of people that is, I think, about fifty seven percent of uh, the members of the general synod have affirmed certain important things. Uh, in the life of the church with regards to how we engage with the issue of human sexuality and more particularly with regards to people from LGBTQ plus community and what harm that has been done in the past and a kind of very uh, unreserved apology for the previous actions. So that's a very important positive step and the fact that we have talked about it and we have voted on it 
needs to be uh, accepted by the wider church. And also that kind of invites us to now very carefully think through the pastoral guidance that needs to be developed now, and also the drafting process of the prayers itself, uh, and how that's going to be received in the July session of the General Synod. So between these kind of uh, moments, so to speak, um, there is certainly lots of emotive responses from different sections of the church. And we have possibly seen the responses from some of the churches in London and in other places where they have uh, gone to take what is called principled protest um, and how we are going to respond to those kind of uh, uh, responses. And also the commitment of the church to walk together both locally here in this country and beyond across the communion. So uh, across the Anglican communion, we have heard what has happened with some of the uh, uh, provinces, particularly the, the global south, uh, uh, um, you know, um, uh, one particular section of the global south has expressed to uh, uh, de-recognize the responsibility of the Archbishop of Canterbury. So there is so much happening. So we need to actually as a church, primarily as Church of England, and not to conflate it with the wider communion. But at this time, Church of England needs to get its own uh, theology, ecclesiology, and its matters relating to our public witness in the secular society in order before conflating it with the wider Anglican communion. And I think that's one of the critical things which I think needs to be very carefully thought through. Do you, do you think it's a time for strong uh, leadership, Anderson? Because you say there are there is a lot of emotive talk and there is a, quite a lot of saber rattling going on from, mm. from all sides of, of the debate. And um, I suspect that might continue for the duration, uh, particularly up to General Synod in the summer do, do you think the church just just has to get on and and not be oblivious to the to the outside noise but it but it's got some some clear work that you've suggested that needs to be completed certainly i, I think we this is where possibly we need to look back into the role church of england and the anglican church has played uh, all these years for centuries uh, definitely, particularly, I come from a, a more, uh, you know, for all reasons and purposes, I come from a more liberal uh, 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 strand of the church, but I must also uh, declare that I grew up in a very evangelical Anglican household in India. Uh, I grew up within that environment, within the environment of Anglican uh, uh, evangelical mission heritage, where uh, the, the being Anglican meant that you need to constantly engage with the wider reality. What that means is that the church is currently is in need of clear leadership, not necessarily a strong leadership, a clear leadership where the church is leading its members as well as becoming a hope and a place of 
uh, inspiration for the society. And this is where I feel that it's not about simply looking at church tradition, but doing what is necessary and what is right and what is just, depending upon the scripture and, and our understanding and our interpretation and our responses to the wider society. Therefore, I think the church uh, is in, at a very crucial time, very at a, uh, so to speak, a crossroads, where it's not simply about keeping the unity, but actually taking decisive action, which is affirming and also sends a very clear message that we are not a church looking backwards, but rather we are inspiring a new generation to be witnesses for the love and, and compassion of God, uh, not to condemn people, not to uh, dismiss people. And this goes both ways. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I love my brothers and sisters from the evangelical tradition. I love them. I don't condemn them for any of the very strict uh, uh, views that they have. But at the same time, I invite them also to have the same compassionate approach to people who have different understanding of human sexuality. This requires a more nuanced, compassionate, clear leadership rather than someone simply uh, demanding, uh, this is what I'm going to say and you're going to listen. And I think uh, I, I am of the opinion probably at this time, we do lack that kind of clear grounded, compassionate leadership in the church. Yeah, so it's, um, it's an interesting one. And, and I want to come back to the kind of um, the wider context issue in, in a minute, Anderson. But, you, you know, you're a, you're a highly regarded academic. And, and, and I would suspect um, some of your students, if nobody else, will sometimes challenge you around the theology and the, and the, and the beliefs that you have. How do you square that circle where there is a huge proportion of people on one side of the argument and a very significant proportion of people on the other side of the argument? I suppose two questions there is one is how you how do you square that circle? And secondly, have any of those people on who hold a different view to yourself ever um, persuaded you to reconsider? Have you ever doubted your your own position? Um. I think my own position, I think uh, I start from, um, you know, I'm, I'm deeply given my own background uh, for the past 25 years, um, um, working towards equality and equal participation and equal representation for more specifically in India. Uh, you know, I, I am a Dalit, a Dalit who is an untouchable within the caste system in India. Uh, so my upbringing is to fight for equality of uh, you know nearly 200 million people who are treated as untouchables and polluting within that particular context. So that's where my journey towards equality began. And then of course, now living in this country for the past um, kind of uh, 18, 19 years, I have fought for the equal representation of people of color and of different race and different ethnicity and different uh, gender to be included in the mainstream uh, um, uh, life of the community. And that includes the church. Uh, therefore, my journey into 
uh, uh, kind of speaking for inclusion, diversity, and equity comes from a position of experiencing uh, uh, deep discrimination and prejudice personally. Uh, and this is where I found uh, the scripture quite inspiring because the work of Jesus and the subsequent missionaries whom I respect highly have really sought for inclusion of everyone. And uh, the message of inclusion is very central to my faith. Therefore, I, I simply cannot uh, imagine a, a, a community, a world where there are insiders and outsiders. There are people who are accepted as equals and some are as unequals. So that is my fundamental lens through which I always theologically look. And this, uh, this has really brought me to my own experience within Church of England. I, I was a big supporter for the full inclusion of women within uh, the ministry of the church, because that is critical. Uh, because if I believe that I uh, uh, that God's image is equally manifested in every individual, uh, that includes man, women, a person of different sexual orientation, transgender, you name it. And because that is theologically fundamental. Uh, this is where I find my position and therefore, uh, when I want to engage with people of a different view, I'm very open, but I also try and invite them to look at my own position, my own experience. So if I've experienced discrimination, I cannot impose a similar perspective on others. So this leads me to my own academic position. I'm in Lancaster University, one of the most uh, highly respected university, but also critically one of the most secular universities. So I teach hundreds of students who are mostly 18, 19 and 20 year old young people who are for the first time coming out of, of a generation that is not used to religion. These are children who are coming and grown up in households, uh, what they are called the generation Z, who don't have the religious language. What they know is freedom, they know equality, they, they talk about justice, they talk about everybody having the free choice uh, to make for their own life. And when I engage with them, when I teach about religion, when I teach about theology, I need to look at it from their perspective. And it honestly, you know, I, I did teach about LLF, I did teach about uh, the debates around human sexuality. Uh, they just simply can't understand how late the church is to this, this debate because for them, anybody can be whatever they want because that's a given. Um, and so what I engage with them is to see the freedom with which they think. Uh, this is quite liberating because this is very exciting for someone who has spent all his life in the church that very often we are limited by our, our imagination to think beyond a, a, a free world where we can come into a society which is equal, which is inclusive and which is diverse. So I don't, I don't try to um, 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 square the circle, but rather I want to jump in yeah. and live in that uh, reality 
of holding differences together, but at the same time, connecting with people at the humane level and look at the person, look at the image of God in that person. And maybe um, I am naive, but it has been very helpful academically and theologically to engage at that level and then bring and have the questions later, but rather than determining before. I find that a really interesting response, uh, Anderson. I, I want to push you on on a couple of things. Is that one is, um, you know, maybe the uh, conservative, uh, the more conservative evangelical approach to Christianity is is a is a matter of indoctrination. And you talk about your students coming to you to you uh, again. You know, I I know a few uh, eighteen, nineteen, twenty year olds in my own house um, that they. They seem to be up for education, but deeply opposed to indoctrination. And I was wondering uh, if it, if you think it comes down to that fundamentally when we're teaching people. Definitely, I think one of the uh, one of the fascinating things with the current generation is that um, what we learned, you know, most of us in our seminaries and in our education, where we need to learn the critical engagement with whatever we receive. It's something that we learned. But this generation, right from their childhood, they question. They don't take anything for granted. They won't take anything and uh, no for an answer. They want to engage, they want to have a debate. They want to, because they have grown up in that free thinking society, particularly uh, in the European context. And also from my own experience, even in uh, what is now called the global South, which is equally technologically exposed to the wider realities of the world. Therefore, I think when, we, when it comes to questions of faith and doctrine and, uh, and belief, the reason that you know, uh, the fact that 60% of young people in this country don't want to be part of any organized religion is that because Organized religion in very often doesn't allow that debate, doesn't allow that questioning, doesn't allow a critical engagement because it feels that it needs to be imposed. As you said, it needs to be indoctrinated. People need to just simply receive it. This, uh, uh, this uh, you know, social attitude has changed. This is where the church needs to really critically engage expecting people to passively receive whatever we give. What we are seeing, particularly in the young generation, is that they want to be actively involved in any form of faith and belief. They don't want to be passive recipients, but they want to be active, actively engaged in that knowledge. What that means is that they are, you know, there are a lot of young people, uh, let's not forget about a lot of young people who do have very conservative faith and belief, but that is their own choice. But whether we have given them enough space to question what we receive. And this is something deeply Anglican. I think uh, if we look back um, the Anglican history itself, I think one of the good thing that I hold on to as an Anglican is to not simply receive whatever is just given to you. We question, we challenge, we debate. And I think we we are in when it comes to a particular uh, question of human sexuality, we seem to have 
lost that ability to debate, to have discussion uh, in, a, in a very cordial, convivial way uh, with a fundamental commitment to each other in, in reflecting God's love. So uh, I think my perception is that if we are confident about our own faith and commitment, we should be confident enough to engage openly with people who differ with us. Yeah, yeah. I want, I want to come back to that, but I also want to just ask you about, um, uh, you know, this kind of rigid kind of sometimes what's maybe thought of as an inability to to allow that to happen within a particular part of of, of the Anglican Church. You know, and I'm I'm being honest. I'm talking about the conservative evangelical wing of the church, where you know I do feel it is quite an indoctrinated kind of approach. Do you, do, you, do you think in this regard, Anderson, there will be a concession that will be agreeable? I mean, do, do you think the one, one of all, can the Church of England communion stay together? I mean, it, it's proved that it can do it through the ordination of women um, and it's given them uh, a framework where people have been able to adapt and adopt that kind of idea. Or, you know, or you can ordain a woman if you want to. And, and and if you don't want to, then you don't have to. Mm. This seems to be almost for some at this point, a bridge too far. This mm. is this about is this about scripture? Is this about fear? Is this about sex? What what do you kind of package it package it as Anderson? I I think first um, the addressing the question about fear. Um, my fundamental commitment is that uh, I believe the church is the body of Christ. We don't own it. We, we, through our faith, through our understanding, through our reason and our, our understanding of the revelation of the incarnation, we participate in that body of Christ. And no single person owns that body of Christ. The second layer is, of course, we have the institutional churches. The very fact, you know, one thing that we need to remind, again, uh, maybe this is where as a, as a teacher I uh, and a researcher who looks at world Christianity, I think the last time I took count, according to the global uh, um, uh, research, uh, it suggests that there are about 77,000 denominations within the Protestant church basically people disagreeing with each other on several doctrinal matters, first order theology, second order theology, ministry, ecclesiology, you name it. There are different reasons for splits to happen. Um, so what, what I see is that schisms and uh, uh, separations and splits within the church is as old as the very disciples of Jesus Christ himself. Even the 12 disciples and then the 120 and then the several early Christians, there were, there were splits, there were groups, there were different standpoints, different experiences. What I would look at that aspect of history, what it shows is that it's very important that different communities to affirm what, what is very important for them at that point in time and what it means to reflect the love of God within that context. So it is the choice that we all make. For me, 
at this given point in time, for all that I explained early on, justice and equity and uh, equal participation of every member that I come across to be part of the church. And that's, that's, a, a, that's something that I cannot compromise on. So for me, because that's the way that I read the scripture, because when I read the scripture, um, that none of us have seen God, none of us have experienced God, but, but only in the love that we share with one another, we experience God. So if I'm choosing <clears throat> not to love someone, I'm actually making that process and the absence of God real. Therefore, for me, I think at the moment, if people are choosing to leave because of the decision of uh, the church to support and be equally welcoming to everyone, then it is their choice. Yeah. But I would be inviting them to look at the experience and God's own love through a different prism and the experience of people. Yeah, I'm. I'm just trying to think of somebody you know, like the opposite argument to what you've just said. There, somebody would say, "Well, you know, maybe on the more conservative side of things, they may say, well, I am acting out of love. Mm. I'm trying to stop them doing something that I believe is deeply sinful, mm. and it's because of my love for you that I am behaving in this manner." What What would your response be to that? This is where we probably need to look at historically the issues that we hold on to as deeply um, um, kind of you can't compromise on it. Let's come back to the human sexuality. Um, our understanding of human sexuality, our understanding of marriage. There has been historical research that has been anthropological, sociological, um, theological, ecclesiological research, hundreds and thousands of books where we are still evolving in, in our capacity to understand how human beings are. Uh, each and every day, our sense of and wonder and the complexity of human beings uh, is constantly increasing. So what I would um, you know, uh, uh, argue uh, and invite people to look at, what is that we fundamentally disagree in terms of uh, a man and a woman and a man and a man and a woman and a woman having relationship. When we are happy to say a man and a woman and the relationship between that two people are perfectly fine, what are the issues? So the issues are about being productive, issues being that this union is consecrated in the scriptures. Um, what the, the problem with that argument is that we are somehow starting from that point, but forgetting there were there was millions and billions of life before that. Yes, our history, our religious history, whether it is Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, you name all the religions. Our religious history goes maybe 3000 BC. Before that, human beings were alive. Human beings were living and having communities. Uh, and we know through scientific technological advance that uh, human beings have started migrating 6,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago. So we are limiting our knowledge of how human beings have evolved, our understanding of sexuality, our understanding of marriage has evolved. 
And there are evidence to do that. Now, if, our, if my faith is fundamentally defined by my adherence of sexuality or adherence of marriage, then I have serious questions about those fundamental commitments. And if my love for Christ and for one another is limited by that one issue, then we need to seriously think, what about the whole lot of other issues that God invites us in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, which where uh, Jesus invites us to do. So I think we shouldn't, I think uh, these are all, in my opinion, um, kind of uh, coming to terms with ourselves as human beings. Uh, we struggled with uh, the issues around uh, women being equally participant in women's ministry, uh, in God's ministry. And we have struggled with people of color being equally involved in God's ministry. We have struggled with uh, people from different regions uh, of the world being equally involved in God's ministry. So these are all historical steps. And I, I hope and I fervently pray that we will be able to see that this is another step in that direction where we begin to see the importance of inclusion and embracing of God's image in everyone, rather than being seen as a, an important step where we are dividing ourselves. Yeah, th thank you, Anderson, for that. Really, you know, there's a lot for there for us to listen to and and consider. Um, time is rushing by, but there's a couple of things, just other things I want to ask. As you alluded to at the beginning of the interview, Anderson, um, the debate was long, and I sat through every minute of that debate, as I'm sure you did. Um, and I was, I was moved at times by people's passion um, on, on both so sides of the argument. I, you know, I, there was somebody who spoke passionately about the sanctity of virginity before marriage. And then on the other side, there was people, you know, very emotionally talking about the pain caused by um, their own experience of being gay or and various different things like that. Um, I think what you alluded to earlier was, was context, you know, and you talked about your students who uh, predominantly have lived in a secular world. Um, I wonder how, you know, in my own context, you know, I found some of the, discussions quite romantic you know they're quite quite a romantic notion you know but the idea that uh in the context of my parish at st matthews that um everybody's going to roll up to church as virgins is um you know is a bit is a bit extravagant and is frankly unbelievable so so if that is the if that is the case you know i was wondering well what do i do if i'm trying to buy into that if i have any idea of supporting that how do how do I do that in the context of of urban ministry? And I'm sure other people think like that. But is this something that we just need to break down and move on from? You know, or is this is this a is this an unrealistic, uh, idealistic vision for the church? Uh, absolutely. No, I think the if we assume that young people are abstaining and uh, not exploring their own sexuality uh, is, 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 uh, is thinking that amounts to burying our heads in the sands and assuming that everything is uh, perfect. 
And maybe this is the problem with some of the social framework that we have embraced, patriarchy, uh, our understanding of power. Uh, we think that these social structures uh, that we take it for granted is somehow followed through um, in every aspect of the society. Maybe some people do, uh, you know, just as you said, uh, there, are, there, there are people who are faithful because that's what gives them a sense of identity. I honestly respect them for doing that. But from large majority of interacting with people uh, who have grown up in a, in a secular environment, this is this is a, a personal choice. This is something that uh, the society cannot dictate what is right and wrong. And this is a, a strong reality in the European American context. And this is also becoming very prevalent in Asia, in, in parts of Africa, where I do my research, where this is something that people, particularly young people, take it as a free choice that they need to make. Nobody can have a control over their own bodies. And this is the reality that the church has to come to terms with. Um, and it's very important because this shift uh, of uh, a personal choice, the freedom of uh, uh, expression, the, the choice that people are able to make across the world has changed. And if the church fails to hold on uh, to this reality, uh, this is not about simply going with the culture, but actually rethinking what are the defining points of any institution. So whether we like it or not, for a long time, Church of England, to be more specific, has been very patriarchal. What I mean by that, men had the say, women have a particular way uh, of being part of that church. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and every step of the way, those norms have to be challenged. So if our theology, our ecclesiology is still adhering to those fundamental principles, and the danger is, if you are exposed to only that set of teaching, Christian theology and faith and belief, there is a danger that we are not in touch with the reality that is our church is located. So I am the same amount of uh, uh, persuasion I have when I challenge uh, social inequality in the in the society. I am, you know, I'm a, uh, I, I, I greatly admire your work uh, for uh, uh, the urban poor. Uh, the, the, the cost of living crisis that is wrecking the, the societies in our uh, communities. If the church simply says, no, this is, this is simply our social reality, we cannot question it, this is how society is constructed, then we are missing the point. We need to really challenge the cost of living crisis. We need to really challenge the fundamental economic principles <clears throat> that is perpetuating the class social inequality. So we cannot simply say, oh, this is how God created us, rich and poor, this is how we are going to accept. Mm -hmm. Then we are not being faithful to our own faith. Therefore, sexuality 
understanding of human sexuality, understanding of marriage is, is, is a very important issue, very much like challenging how poor are going to always be with you. Yeah, I think it's so important to say that, Anderson. You know, I'm, I, over the years, I've worked with a number of gay people, gay clergy, fabulous priests who just want to get on, don't they? They just want to get on and serve and live out the gospel. And I, and I do think this is an interference. I wonder if it's if it's actually, um, you know, I wonder if you think the church will survive this because, uh, and talk about the Church of England here, you know, we're, we're our... Uh, record low numbers of attendance people are turning away in their droves there is a gospel to proclaim mm. um which um, you and i um would probably agree needs to be in, in in calling out injustice and serving the poor but actually it's being caught up in this other this kind of this argument here that it's like it it's just will not let go and and i and i really fear for the church personally do, do you think we can survive this anderson I, I go back to my point about the body of Christ. Uh, we don't own it. Uh, the fact that we are here 2,000 years still talking about Jesus Christ, that will carry on. I think human beings will come and go. I think the love of God manifested in this world will carry on. Whether the Church of England as an institution survive, this is a different question uh, because there are financial consequences. Uh, for example, you know, the last count I heard that about 16 churches in the Diocese of London have decided to withhold their parish share. There are for, uh, financial consequences for the actions. But my question would come back to whether the church has lived up to its calling to call out injustice, to work for equity, to work for inclusion of all people, uh, whether you are man, woman, or transgender, or you are a person of uh, uh, heterosexual orientation, homosexual orientation, or bisexual. That's not uh, uh, identities, categories that God looks at. God looks at as God's creation. And this is also much larger in terms of how we create, uh, uh, create the entire environment. Therefore, the church will, I believe, will survive, whether it will survive in its current form or not. Uh, that I don't know. But I will certainly see the continuation of God's love being proclaimed in one way or another, which is called the body of Christ. That will survive. Um, this, I think, is, is, is just a blip in the long journey of Church of England's own coming to terms with its own identity. Whether we are Church for England or Church of England um, needs to be, I think, even though those adjectives are very small, um, they are very critical. Whether we are challenging the society to be more like the kingdom of God or the household of God that we are all seeking to be, or we are simply trying to keep up a tradition uh, of centuries old, which doesn't keep up with the the pace of change that is happening within our own understanding of humanity. I absolutely agree. I made that point to a BBC journalists recently. You know, the church is is faced with a choice if if it wants to be 
the church in England or the church of England. And, mm. and that's the fundamental choice and, and the issue that lies before us. Mm. Anderson, I'm, I'm so grateful of your time. It's been fabulous talking to you. I do have one last question. As somebody who, who perhaps considered themselves perhaps on the outside of academia, although I have been pr- through the programme, I, I just wonder, as an academic, Anderson, if you sometimes feel there is too much academia in theology. Now, um, what I mean by that is is that... Uh, I'm sure you're going to say no as a, as a as a lecturer, but you know I've I've been in uh, in study groups and I've been in tutors' houses where the walls are wall to wall books, not too dissimilar to yours there. <laughs> but, and uh, and I remember once saying to the tutor, saying, "Who who was? It was perhaps not as gentle as humble as yourself. You know, he was quite um, quite pious and quite arrogant. You know, and wanted to finger wag. And I kind of suggested, well, of course." You don't know it all, do you? And he said, well, why not? I said, well, you've got all these books, you know, and, and and I do sometimes question and wonder if we need our students to be practically engaging as well as academically engaging. And and I would sometimes wonder if the balance is quite right. That's the, the final very long windy mm-hmm. question I have for you, Emerson. Um, let me demythologize academia. Uh, uh, I, I'm, I consider myself an accidental academic. So. I I started off as an activist, and then I became a priest. And then I realized that there was that practical element missing in academia, a a voice of experience, voice of reason that is tempered with lived experience. And that's why I came into academia. So the way that I look at academia is that knowledge production is very important. We all produce knowledge. And I I think now that you have written a book, you also produced knowledge. But what sort of knowledge we produce, which are very critical for for the society, for the community to to learn from our mistakes, to learn from our past so that we can shape the future and the present. So with regards to theology, I think uh, there is a deep, deep need for theology to be grounded, experiential, and practical. I think gone are the days uh, 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 when people basically wrote from uh, their comforts of their offices. I think there needs to be a critical interaction between experience and, and our ability to talk about God. If we look back, all the theologians of the uh, uh, kind of the 20th century, let's start from Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, and all these big theologians that we uh, constantly refer to, they spoke from their lived experience. They were responding to the social realities. Karl Barth was responding to fascism, uh, to Hitler's uh, uh, annihilation of a whole community. So was uh, Bonhoeffer. And in our own context, you know, if we take uh, um, the uh, um, John Andrew Newman, he was responding to a whole reality that was affecting the society in England at that point in time. So theology in its essence, how we respond to God and how we respond to God's action in this world. So any theology that is not balanced in that way uh, becomes runs the danger of being oblivious to the reality. Therefore, uh, I advocate an academic theology that is grounded in the life of people. 
because that's what, after all, God chose to do. God became human so that we can understand God's love. A lovely way to end the interview, Anderson. Thank, thanks so much for coming on. I could talk to you. I could talk to you for hours. It's such a you're such a fascinating person to talk to, and and so informative and knowledgeable. Thank you so much, and uh, and uh, I wish you a, a lovely rest of the day. We send our love up to Lancaster, not too far away from East Lancashire in Burnley, and and thank you for coming on the Godcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a it was an honor and a privilege to share these thoughts with you. Thank you. <laughs>